0: You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702.
1: The Naked Scientist.
0: Time for The Naked Scientist. Happy Monday, Dr. Chris. How are you doing? Happy Monday. I'm good. How are you? I am great. I am great. I was just um, having a conversation around co-sleeping with your children and babies in the bed. And our guest expert was saying that apparently mothers have an instinct to naturally not roll on top of their babies because I was like, that was my biggest fear. So I didn't sleep in Mm. the bed with my baby. And I was like, I had no idea. Let me ask Dr. Chris about that instinct.
1: Well, you would assume that it would be a very strong sort of selection pressure for that to happen wouldn't you because obviously it'd be a very easy way for us to wipe ourselves out if that were the case. Yes. So I think there the probably is something in it but I'm, I'm not aware of, of any particular studies that have been done. doesn't mean they haven't been done it just means I haven't read them so thank you for asking a question I haven't been asked before. i tell you what I'll do I'll take that as homework and I, I'll go and see what studies have been done not just in humans but in other animals as well. I mean obviously we know that there are enormous Uh, numbers of instinctive behaviors around child rearing nurturing behavior and so on so I, i wouldn't be at all surprised if there isn't something in this but whether anyone's looked at it and looks at it in the, in the right sort of way. I don't know. So I'm going to go and find out.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. So we do jump straight into all of the questions. 011 8830702 is where you can call with your science related question. You can send through an SMS 31702 tweet at Rile M at Radio 702 or using the hashtag 702 Afternoons or send through your messages and WhatsApp voice notes to 072 1702. We start with Ben in Kempton Park. Hi, Ben. In. hi mm, how are you I'm fine how are you good good go ahead yeah uh, Dr. Chris I've got a question uh, we hear of uh, or we are made to understand that uh, above um, when you go up uh, the higher you go the cooler it becomes but the sun is up there and how come it's colder there? That's one part of the question uh, which I'm, I'm trying to to ask. These people who who hide in the stowaway of the planes and they fly to whatever destinations. How come they they suffer the, the the cold up there when the sun is up there? It's supposed to be warmer than here on Earth, and yet we get the heat here. Mm, That's a very good question, Ben. Doctor?
1: Hello, Ben. Well, the answer is that, yes, it is colder at altitude, but not uniformly so. And a couple of years ago, we did this fab experiment that actually some people in South Africa helped us with as well, where we sent a helium balloon to the edge of space. And as well as taking nice pictures and video, which was extraordinary, actually, you can see it on our website, if you look up the Naked Scientist space balloon, We also measured temperature and atmospheric composition on the way up. And you'll see that the temperature does indeed fall and become really very chilly very quickly the higher you go. But then at a certain altitude, things warm up again and they get really hot for a while and then they cool down again. Now, why does that happen? Well, first of all, why does it get colder the higher you go, despite, as you point out, you are getting a bit closer to the sun? Well, the answer is the sun is millions of kilometres away. And so the few kilometres that you go up in the atmosphere really bring you, in the grand scheme of things, virtually no closer to the sun. So it's nothing to do with distance. The reason it gets colder with altitude, and for instance, the top of a mountain is colder than ground level, is because at ground level, say you produce some warm air and it's less dense, it starts to rise. As the air rises, it feels less pressure from the atmosphere above. Because when you're at ground level, you've got the whole weight of the atmosphere pushing down on you. But as you rise, there's less weight of atmosphere above you because you're higher above the ground. And this means that the air expands. Now, if it expands, the volume increases. It's effectively doing a bit of work to get bigger. And if it's doing work, it's using energy. So its average energy falls. So therefore, in the same way that when you spray your deodorant can of deodorant in your armpit and it feels cold coming out of the can, the atmosphere does the same thing. So as the air rises, it expands, it loses energy in that way because it's done work. Therefore, the temperature falls. But why my observation with my balloon? Why does it get hotter at some parts of the atmosphere? And the reason for this is because there are some parts of the atmosphere where there are gases that are absorbing energy from the sun because most of the atmosphere is pretty transparent to the sun's rays. But there's one very important layer called the ozone layer, which starts at maybe 15 kilometres up, maybe up to 50 kilometres up. And in that band, there's a lot of ozone, which is three oxygen atoms stuck together, O3 molecules. These strongly absorb ultraviolet rays, and they're what protect us from the sun's rays here on the Earth's surface. If that ozone layer wasn't there, we would receive very high doses of ultraviolet and that would be dangerous. So if you've got a layer of atmosphere which is actually absorbing energy very strongly from the sun, if it's absorbing energy, it's going to be more energetic, it's going to be hotter. So that's why you see the temperature go down, 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 down as you get higher because the atmosphere is expanding and its average energy is dropping, but then the temperature goes rocketing up again as soon as you hit that band of ozone because that's the point at which the molecules in the atmosphere, rarefied as they are, are absorbing energy from sunshine and they get very hot and they stay hot for a little while, and then you go out the other side of that band of ozone, and uh, you're back into the cool atmosphere again. So the temperature goes down, goes down, goes down a long way, goes up quite a long way, then goes down again.
0: Thank you so much, Ben, for that question. Uh, Elton in Morrows go ahead. Hi, uh Alton, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? Good, good, and afternoon to the top here. I just wanted Hello, to mate. ask... Uh, I just wanted to ask, what happens to the brain when somebody blacks out after some drinks? But there's a a certain level of activity that they do, uh, like driving, like walking home, or any other activity, but you don't recall that.
1: Mm. Uh, Are you referring to the fact that some people will say, when they were driving home... They know they must have stopped at lots of robots, gone round various stop streets. They must have pulled up sharp to avoid somebody who pulled out in front of them. But when they actually yeah. thought about it, they couldn't remember doing any of it. And yeah, I it. once asked um, the keyboard player, Rick Wakeman, I was talking to him, a very famous keyboard player. And I said to him, why do you, why do you uh, shut your eyes when you're playing? And he said, because quite frankly, if I'm looking at what I'm doing, I go wrong. But he said it's just like driving. For him, playing the keyboards was just like driving. You can't actually consciously think about where each finger is going. It's all happening on autopilot because you're so good at it, because you've had lots of practice, that you basically let your subconscious take over. And so a lot of driving is instinctive. When you become a good driver... The reason it doesn't feel laborious, hard work and too much of a struggle like it did when you were learning is because you've become really practiced at doing it. And so you've basically displaced a lot of the decision making into pre-programmed circuits in your brain. You've learned Mm -hmm. that when this happens, anticipate the following and react accordingly. And so pretty quickly that starts to switch into an automatic process where you then free up your consciousness to think about other things, listening to the news, looking out the window. And although you are keeping an eye on what's happening, your subconscious has learned to keep you safe. And it's the same with many tasks in life. And it's basically because your brain is programmed not to deluge you with too much sensory information because you couldn't possibly handle it all. And so some things that can safely be exported off to other circuits that are not part of your conscious experience and are therefore not laid down in memory... Those experiences are the ones that you're less aware of. And it's only when you think back, you realise that you ignored them at the time because you think, hang on, I don't actually remember doing that. And I've done it the same. I've been driving along and thought, I'm at home. How did, how did I get here? I, mm. I don't actually remember going down that bit of road. But then if you think very carefully, you think, well, hang on. No, I do actually. I, there is a vague memory there. I, I was just thinking about something else at the time. So it's really where your attention is that you're conscious of versus your attention that's being subconsciously used to drive the car safely.
0: Thank you so much, Alton, for that question. Timber and Dennis, I see all of you. I see your WhatsApp voice notes. We'll be back after this. 702 The Naked Scientist. We are still with Doctor Chris Smith. We take your calls, SMSs, tweets, and WhatsApps, and now we go to Temba in Lone Hill. Hi, Temba. How are you? I'm good, and you? Good, good. Go ahead. So, I was wondering, how do planes fly and stay up in the
1: air? Hmm. Hi, Temba. Yes, it's amazing to think, isn't it, when you see this enormous thing in the sky and you think that weighs hundreds of tons. And some of them are so big that when you see them from a distance, it looks like they're barely moving, although they are going at a very high speed. And the fact they're up there shows you that, well, they obviously can fly. So how are they doing it? Well, they're using physics, basically. And they're using physics that Isaac Newton taught us about. Isaac Newton, a few hundred years ago, famous physicist, defined three laws of motion. And one of them, which is that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, is really useful here. In other words, something is pushing the plane upwards and if the plane is pushing being pushed upwards something must be being pushed downwards by the plane because for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. So that's basically how it works. The plane is pushing on something and it's pushing back. Well the plane's in the air so what's it pushing on? The only thing it can be pushing on is the air itself. So the reason planes are able to fly and stay aloft is because they are using the air itself to create this thing we call lift which is basically a force which is pushing the plane upwards as hard as gravity is trying to pull the plane downwards or harder, depending upon if the plane is in level flight or, or ascending. And the question is therefore, well, how does the plane create this lift? And the answer is, it's down to the wings. Now, put really simply, the wings are devices which push air downwards so that air pushes the plane up equally hard. And if you push enough air downwards hard enough, you can you can make enough lift to keep the plane up in the air. Effectively, you could lift a plane up by its wings, which is what the air is doing when it's keeping the plane aloft. So it's all down to the shape of the wings, and it's useful to think of this from both the perspective of the underside and also the top side of the wing. So let's start with the underneath. If you look at the shape of the wing, it's lower at the back than it is at the front. So air that hits the front of the wing and goes underneath it is then pushed along underneath the wing, And downwards by the back edge of the wing. So you can probably guess where I'm going with this. If you push air downwards with the back of your wing, the air pushes you up as hard as you've pushed it downwards. So the bottom of the wing is pushing air down and it's pushing the wing up. So that's where some of the lift comes from. But it's not the whole story because there's also the top surface of the wing as well. And the top of the wing is also curved and higher at the front than it is at the back. And there is this. Other phenomenon which is called the Coanda effect and this is named after the the physicist Coanda, who described this. This is where when something flows over a curved surface it sticks to that surface and as the air goes over the surface of the wing because it curves downwards towards the back the air is effectively being pulled down onto the top surface of the wing and as you probably guessed it if you pull air downwards it pulls you upwards so you push air downwards with the bottom side of your wing you pull air upwards with the top side of your wing and the net effect is that the plane creates enough lift to keep it in the air
0: i think that's quite a solid explanation and then an interesting question from dennis in mamilodi go ahead dennis hi good uh, good afternoon i want to ask quickly you know because of i love eating beans all kinds of beans but because of a lot of gas you know so i've been asking myself what what is the... What's happening? Dennis, are you... Are other people complaining that you are gassy? No, no. Even if I'm alone, they cause a lot of gassy. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Doctor, why do beans I, I, make you fart?
1: The reason that beans make you fart, and, and so do lots of other vegetables, actually, is because they've got a lot of soluble fibre and complex carbohydrate matter in them. When you eat this stuff... Some of it can't be digested by our digestive juices. We contain enzymes and acid in our digestive juices, which can dismantle some of the chemicals which we find in the foods we eat. And most of the ones that we use most often and we need the most. And they can be absorbed in the small intestine and used to make you get bigger or repair yourself. But some of this stuff, we don't have the right things in our digestive juices to break them apart. And most of those things are the complex carbohydrates and fiber, cellulose, which is in plant matter. And if you can't break it down in your small intestine, it ends up in your big intestine. Now, your big intestine is rammed full of bacteria. And the bacteria see these various chemicals. And although we couldn't digest them, the bacteria do have the metabolic know-how to do so. And if you deluge your big intestine with a big dose of all these complex carbohydrates and cellulose and and sugars that we can't break down, but bacteria can, you basically create a massive bacterial banquet in your big bowel. How about that for an alliteration? And when these microbes start chowing down on these mixtures of various complex carbohydrates, soluble fiber and so on, they, as a product of their metabolism, produce a lot of gas. It's a bit like when you go to the brewery industry and you've got yeast, which is another form of microorganism, digesting sugars in the in the brewery. It's churning out loads of carbon dioxide. The bacteria in your guts do exactly the same thing. As they dismantle these various things you fed them, they will produce gas as a byproduct. A lot of it is CO2. There is some hydrogen in there. There can be some methane in there as well because there's a lot of carbon and hydrogen in there. But there will also be trace amounts of other molecules, and the really whiffy ones are the ones that have got sulfurs in them. And there will be things like macaptoethanols. There will also be things like hydrogen sulfide in the mix, although at low concentration. But these compounds are very whiffy, even at really low concentration. So the bulk of the fart gas is things like carbon dioxide, a bit of hydrogen, but the, the whiffy component is the sulfur, compounds and they generally come from things that have got sulfur in them already so if you eat sulfur rich foods like brussels sprouts like cabbages things like that which are quite strongly flavored with sulfur compounds in them onion as well then you make lots of farts and you make them smelly farts if you want to do odor free farts you have to minimize your intake of sulfur containing foods
0: all right, thank you so much for that uh, question. We've got another one that's uh, label in Deep Sluit. Hi, level. Okay, we just lost level. Let's go to Thomas in Tembisa. Hi, Thomas. Hi, afternoon. Ma'am. Yes, I just want to know about the moon. When it rises there in the east, when it's a full moon, it appears to be a little bit bigger than when it is up there at 90 degrees. And then I just want to know why is that exactly?
1: Mm, did you get that, Doctor? Yeah, hi, Thomas. This is called the Moon on the Horizon illusion. And it's amazing you spotted it, but it's absolutely right, that observation, that when the Moon is on the horizon, it does appear to us as though it's larger than when it's high up in the sky. But as we were talking about earlier with respect to the atmosphere and so on, the distance that we are at when we are, um, the, the distance away from the Moon through our atmosphere is tiny in comparison to the massive distance it is away to the moon so it's not that the moon is really changing its its size at all it is our perception of how big it is that is changing and what's different when the moon is on the horizon compared to when it's directly overhead is objects that we can compare it to our brains have evolved to make visual and size judgments based on comparisons and so if you see something next door to something huge then you tend to, to regard one as relative in size to the other. So when you see a tree and a house and then the moon behind it, you know that a tree and a house is quite big. You also know the moon is quite far away. So your brain says, well, it, that thing over there must be massive if a house looks this big. So it inflates the moon's size in your perception to balance things up. But when the moon is in the, in the sky, there's nothing against which you can make that comparison. So your brain regards the moon... And the sun, in fact, does the same thing in isolation and you don't get that distortion of your perception. So it appears to be a bit smaller when it's right overhead compared to when it's on the horizon.
0: So it's all about perception. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist.